Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Some of you are already feeling a little more comfortable because the stage isn't set up with chairs. And uh, we're not set up for any sort of awkward conversation or anything like that. Um, But uh, if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. Um, And if you weren't, you might want to check that out online with earbuds in. Um, And so anyway, I I have a really great idea because, you know, we had uh, so much uh, fun with the awkwardness of last week. I thought today we would debate masks. And so what, what I'm asking for is a group of volunteers, actually two groups of volunteers. I'd like one group to um, come on up here and defend the position um, of the, you know, the more socialist, communist regimes that we've been serving under that have been forcing mask mandates. And I want you to have a lot of eye rolling, and I want you to raise your voice. And on the other side, I want a group of people that uh, don't care about, ch- uh, about the immunocompromised or the elderly. Um, and, and I want another group of people that feel like, uh, you know, that, that uh, maybe they can sit in the middle and they could talk down to both extremes. Yeah, like if we could do that, we could dress them all. We could do like a red group and a blue group maybe. Or maybe a purple group in the middle with condescension as its main theme. Um, and so I, and then if, and if we can't settle it with a whole lot of eye rolling and name calling, then what I was thinking is we could just simply do a good tug of war, like an old school tug of war and settle, settle all of these issues. That would be really, really fun, I think. And uh, if I could take some volunteers um, for that. And if you want to volunteer for that, we should have a conversation later. <laughs> because that's a little bit of a soul check moment, I think, that we probably need, need to have off, off, offline. Uh, because, of course, that would be absolutely absurd. Why would we actually go about and try to start uh, a fight, start uh, an argument, Um, If we could add, like, you know, pitchforks and torches to the whole thing, I feel like we would have completed the perfect picture. And yet, here we go, uh, as we see this whole kind of a thing yet again happen, when churches are confronted with divisive kinds of issues. And of course, some of you hear that and you go, that's not a divisive issue. And others are like, it's not supposed to be a divisive issue. You made it a divisive, and you made it a divisive issue, and there's the point. And churches, time and again, they face these divisive issues. They break our unity. They divide a community all the time. And we're in a little bit uh, of text here in 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul is giving us some deeply biblical principles that are certain to rattle each and every one of us at different times and in different ways over different issues. In fact, I think that's largely part of why this this section of the text exists in the way it does, is because it offers a challenge to each and every one of you. And the moment you think it applies simply to someone else, that's probably when it's best applied to you. So we're looking at a really cool text. Uh, It's a a challenging text in uh, many, many ways. Uh, And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 1. And the first thing that we're going to see is that knowledge by itself is insufficient and perhaps 
can even be dangerous. And so we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're starting in verse 1. He says, now, about food sacrificed to idols. We'll come back to that thought. Just hold that for a second because he does this little detour. We know that we all possess knowledge. So he, he had gotten some sort of a letter and the people who were writing, the people who were in the knowledge group, uh, had this idea that we all possess knowledge. And he's saying, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So he starts with this idea that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so you, and it's kind of an, uh, an interesting picture that he's creating here because we have to start out with the acknowledgement that we're not against knowledge, right? So there's, a, there's been a big portion of the American church that really since the 50s started going in kind of an anti-intellectual direction. And this has not been a good thing for the American church. We started getting a reputation and, and a reputation that was at least partly deserved for being anti-science, anti-intellectual. We were against the academy and we were against all of the schools that were doing this thing that we didn't like. And we were, we're, we're known primarily now for what we're against rather than the things that we are for. And a lot of this had to do with the American church recoiling from knowledge. And so we have to make a little distinguishing here because we, we, when we're talking about knowledge, we have to acknowledge that growing in knowing is not the same thing as growing in Christ. And so you can actually grow in knowledge and not grow in Christ, but we cannot mean that that, that doesn't mean that we take the opposite of it and say, well, that means that knowledge itself is bad. Knowledge itself is not the problem. It's what happens in the hearts of Christians when they start gaining knowledge. And we've seen this too many times. Sometimes really knowledgeable Christians are the worst possible Christians. And you think, come on, is that really a little harsh? But if you think back to Jesus' day, we see the, the same exact pattern. The smartest, most educated, the people that had memorized vast portions of the Old Testament, the religious elites of the day, which made them some of the smartest people on the whole planet during that time in history, were the people that Jesus had the most problems with. So something broke as they pursued knowledge. But we're, we're definitely not claiming the opposite because we actually know that here and in else, other places that knowledge is put forward as a key part of growing. And so we, we do know that. And so there, there has to be something else going on here. There was a story of a, a missionary. She was a Chinese missionary. She was actually very, very young. Like she started out maybe 17, 18 years old. And so she's like an absolute hero of the faith. And she had very little access to the Bible because her village only had a few scraps of the Bible. Then as she traveled from village to village in China, this is back in the 80s when it was exceptionally difficult to get any, even, even a, a full copy, a single copy of the whole of the Bible, uh, she would go and she would memorize whatever portion of the Bible that village had. And then if she found somebody that had a, a Bible, that she would just study it for days on end trying to, to learn as much of it as she could so she could teach it to the next village that she would go to. And she came to one village that only had a few scraps of the Bible. And it was one of the parables where the, the, widow, uh, the, uh, the maidens were told to carry extra oil so that when the bridegroom comes, they would have oil in their lamps and they would be ready. And so without the context of what Jesus was trying to teach in that parable, the young 
Chinese Christians started carrying oil around. And, and you look at that and you go, well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they were just following it and they were obeying it as best they understood. And so that's a good thing. But of course, there's so much more that that meant. They needed more knowledge. They needed more information. And it was, it was the responsibility of the missionaries to go and bring more knowledge and more information so that we might have a more robust and more complete understanding of the gospel. So we're not saying the opposite here. I cannot uh, stress that enough. This is why we have discipleship classes and we have discipleship groups and we have small groups because we want every single one of us to be growing in knowledge. Our discipleship groups ha classes have like 60 hours of content that we consider essential for the Christian life. That's, that's, that's the base minimum for us. There's all sorts of other ways that we encourage people to continue to grow in knowledge. And yet we still have this warning that knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And, and he's been talking about building a lot throughout the letter. And so the way I kind of picture this in my head is, you know, you're building, you build with bricks. And so, you know, bricks or wood or something substantial. And so you can imagine he's building this foundation. He's building this, the beginning of a house or something like that. He's building a wall and, and he builds it up out of brick. And then, and then when you get to knowledge, knowledge puffs up. And so he, you picture this big old balloon and he's kind of blowing it up, blowing it up, blowing it up. And then what happens with that? What is that? Well, it's just the same size as the big pile of brick. But of course, it's got none of the substance. Go ahead and attack the pile of bricks with a stick, and you'll do little damage. Go ahead and, and give it grief. Cause it some chaos. Put it under pressure. Beat it up a little bit. You'll barely scratch it. But you attack the balloon that was puffed up, and there's very little left when the balloon is now gone. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Paul is trying to give you a picture that there's a substantive difference between love and between knowledge. That's really gonna end up being our key that we have to remember. Then he goes on, he says, that those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And I love that because I feel like this should be like one of my memory verses. I think I could, I could probably be a way better human being if I could make this one of my daily memory verses. Uh, and so I probably should add it, and uh, then I didn't this week, but I should have. Uh, and so maybe I will. I, I, uh, and for me, this is such a, it's just such a humbling moment when you come to a text like this, when you realize what he's, what he's saying, what he's implying. Because, you know, all right, so I heard a story of a woman. Her name was Judith. She's on the subway. And uh, as she's on the subway... Uh, kind of like, you know, minding her own business, she notices a woman on the subway, a seat near her, get up and leave the train. But she notices a glove there. And so she puts two and two together. And so Judith jumps up, she grabs the glove, and right as the doors were closing, the lady had already left the train, she yells out, ma'am, you, you left your glove, and she throws it out the door, it lands on the platform, the doors close, the train pulls away, and she feels like, wow, I was just, I was a really good person until the, the person next to her, uh, the lady who just left, said, that, that, that was my glove. So it went and snatched the other woman's glove, threw it out the subway. And I think so many times we know what we know until we realize we didn't know as much as we knew. And so I think we need humility in what we know. And Paul here, he distinguishes between knowing things and growing in your knowing and knowledge. And he actually, he actually goes after this idea of knowledge quite a, few quite a few different ways because 
When you have attained knowledge, you've arrived. But when you are in the process of knowing, you're now humble and teachable. If you feel like you have arrived, if you feel like you got it all locked down, if you feel like you know it all, then you have attained knowledge. But if we keep the humility that comes with following Jesus and living in this vast, incredible universe with the wisest of, of beings that we have ever possibly imagined in our own minds, then I think we can continue in this process of knowing. And I think it does really great things for us and for our community. I think, imagine if we all together could continue to be growing in knowing with an eye toward learning to love more deeply, I think it would wipe out so many of the issues and the problems and the frustrations that have plagued Christians and churches over these last few years and, of course, really throughout the history of the church. See, as followers of Jesus, our knowledge of Christ, our salvation, the truth that Jesus wins in the end, it means that we are free from the restrictions that plague this world. We're free from the religious. We're free from the economic. We're free from the social rules that this world plays by. Things that restrict people who don't know Jesus. When you come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and who you are and the freedom that we have in Christ, it changes the whole of your relationship to the world, to yourself, people around you, and of course to God. We get this idea really uh, in, in, he's, in the next verse, he says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. So he's back to the topic of eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So this idea, what does it mean food sacrificed to idols? You've got to kind of go back a little bit and think about uh, this day uh, back then because in Roman Corinth, they didn't have restaurants like we do. They had a few, but not like we do. You wouldn't just go to a restaurant and kind of do, like, you know, have a party or celebrate a wedding at a catering hall as much. You, you, uh, so imagine the, the city of Corinth. It's in the center of the city, there's this great big area, the marketplace. And surrounding this, the, the marketplace, and it's kind of like their grocery store, right? And so uh, around that are all of these temples. And in Corinth in particular, they sat under the shadow of temples that were way up on the mountain as well. And so the temple life of Corinth was so dominant. And during temple celebrations and sacrifices, people would come and they'd offer an animal at the temple. Those animals would be sacrificed. The priest would eat some of it. The people who made the sacrifice would eat some of it. But inevitably, there would be lots left over. That would be sold to the marketplace. When it was sold to the marketplace, then it was sold to the regular people, some of whom don't regularly get meat, especially the, the, the poorer people don't regularly get this kind of meat. But if you've got a big celebration at the temples, then, of course, it floods the market with meat. And so sometimes this might be the only meat some of the, the lower class, the, we, the less wealthy people could actually buy. And all of a sudden, there's a question. Can we? Most of the parties, you wouldn't go to a restaurant, you would go to the temples. They were the ones that had the facilities to throw a big party. They're the ones that had the space. And so if you had a, a business meeting, back then they were called the guilds, right? The trade guilds. You would go and, and your trade guild would have a celebration at a temple. 
So you would have a business meeting among all of your colleagues and about, uh, with people who might be potential business partners and people that you could sell to and buy from and all of that, but it would all be done in the context of a temple with offerings made to the false gods. And so, of course, brand new Christians were just rattled by this. Are we partaking with demons? Are we partaking with false gods? What happens when I go to this party, this celebration, and it gets to, the, to where I know it's going to get to? There's going to be a party, and then there's the after party. And in the after party, all sorts of sketchy things go down. There's going to be drunkenness, and there's going to be temple prostitutes, and there's going to be young children that shouldn't actually be there, and there's going to be a horrible scene. What do Christians do there? How do we participate when we know the immorality associated with the heresy, with the lies, with the idolatry? And so this was a super troubling issue, and it's mentioned in a whole lot of different ways throughout the New Testament. What could Christians do? Could we buy it? Could we eat it? What if I went to a friend's house and we were sitting down to eat it and they said, yeah, yeah, this was offered to, you know, one of the many gods of the Roman pantheon. Oh my goodness, well, what am I supposed to do? Very troubling, very disturbing. And of course, Paul, he comes and he goes, listen, an idol is nothing. It's nothing. We don't have to worry about these things. We're free because we know better. And in one way, Paul goes on to explain to us that is perfectly fine for followers of Jesus to know that and to live that way. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. These things are nothing. All of the food was God's food. All of the animals were the one true God's animals. We serve the King and the Creator. We don't need to worry about any of these things because as followers of Christ, we have incredible freedom in this world. We don't need to worry about what society thinks about us and we don't have to restrict ourselves based on legalists judging us or anything like that. And I can, meet, I can eat meat offered to an idol because I know an idol is nothing. My knowledge allows me to do this. It's not a problem for my conscience. Some years ago, Cheryl and I had a, a group of Muslim friends, and they had invited us to go to a mosque and to break the fast of Ramadan with them. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. It sounds a whole lot like going to a temple and having food sacrificed to an idol. Um, but uh, wow, like I should think this through a little bit. And, and on the basis of a text like this, Cheryl and I decided we would go and do it. And we had some friends uh, in the Christian uh, subculture we were a part of at the time that were like, I'm not so sure you can do stuff like that. And Cheryl and I were like, well, I kind of think we can. And, and so we did. And the, the time came, I think it was sunset or something, and dates were brought out. And you all together break the fast with the dates. And I hadn't fasted, so I felt like I was cheating. But it was, you know, but anyway, there were great dates. And then, and, then, uh, and then we had a little meal, and they opened up like the rest of it. And then after that, they just loved the idea that Christians were there, and they all wanted to talk religion. And so we got in a big circle with the leaders of the mosque, and they were peppering us with questions about Jesus. And we were talking about the Bible and having just an absolutely amazing time. I thought, I don't have to worry about any of this. I serve the creator of the universe. 
Those dates were his before they were yours. And he gave them to me, his child. So idols are nothing. And in that way, knowing there is only one guy, one God, and if a guy thinks that he has sacrificed his food to an idol, his ignorance does not change my freedom. That's where you want to draw the line. That's where you want to put a big old period. You want to say, well, that's it. Paul answered the question. He settled it. So I think that's pretty good. Let's just move on to the next controversial topic, especially because those who are in the know, the people with the greater knowledge, would have loved that part of Paul's answer. But it's not the end of the conversation. He goes on and he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And at first when you read this, you think, oh, Paul's doing it again. He's arguing against the weak. And he's saying, look, it, food isn't the issue for the weak people, for the people that don't understand it. If you understood this, then you wouldn't worry. But then you realize that's not what he's doing here. He's actually using this last line against those who are in the know against the so-called mature, the people with the knowledge, because he's already set the stage. Not everyone possesses this knowledge, which means, wait a second, with limited knowledge and with an increase in conscience and with people starting to stumble back into their old ways of sin, people who say, I can't participate in those kinds of things because they're going to hurt me and my journey with this new journey I have with this, with this Jesus, and I, and I can't participate in those ways. And Paul's saying, yes, that's actually true. Now, it's important for us to recognize, right, some issues in the Bible are perfectly clear. They are immoral, right? And so adultery is always wrong. Drunkenness is always wrong. These things are, are just spelled out, and they're super clear. So we know those things. There's a whole other category of things in the Bible that are amoral. Not immoral, they're amoral. They're not, they're not good or bad. Eating isn't good or bad. It's just not good or bad. Dancing, not good or bad. I mean, you can be a lousy dancer, I know that. But it's not morally good, or I guess lousy dancing could be morally, I don't know. It's just, anyway, the point is, it's not good, it's not bad. These things aren't good or bad, they're amoral. What we wear isn't necessarily good or bad, but it can be good or bad can't say clothing is immoral, but it could be. So some issues, they, they fall into these gray areas, and especially things that could be good end up being bad when it causes this situation. Because your freedom in Christ and your so-called knowledge can actually hurt another brother or sister in Christ. He actually tells it. He spells it out. It says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, it's going to be a big idea for us. We've got to keep this one in mind. The exercise of your God-given inalienable rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Listen to how Paul just ramps this up suddenly. 
He goes all the way. When you sin against them in this way and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Our knowledge can run right over people's lives and love doesn't do that. Love won't do that. Paul's talking about a posture of the heart that gives up your rights, gives up what you're actually entitled to for the good of others. This is one of these moments where you start to think, oh my goodness, like the application of this into my own life, it can just, it can change so many things and it can rattle me in so many different ways. This is an exploration of our own souls that can really go into some very deep places and it can really turn up some old, very deeply held values that we have been learning since we were children. Now, I want to say real quick that it doesn't mean, this isn't the kind of a verse that can be weaponized, okay? This isn't supposed to be used by the professional weaker brother. And so there are people in the world that love to be the professional weaker brother. They just go around telling you how to live your life. And, and if you say anything like, hey, actually, no, I kind of have freedom in this and I can do this. They're like, no, 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 you're going to make me stumble. And so it's like, actually, if you know the verse, it probably doesn't apply to you. <laughs> And so, like, you know, there's this thing, like this, you know, people go around and they kind of, like, make sure that, hey, this is what we ought to do. And it's also not for people who are just irritated by it. They just don't like what you're doing, right? And so it, 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 this isn't about, you know, the kind of folks who you might run into who are offended by you. It's not what, you know, just because just someone is offended. We're talking about a group of people who are trying to walk with Jesus and when they see your freedom, when they see what you are allowed to do, it draws them back into patterns of behavior and into relationships that they used to have and into, into ways that they used to experience uh, joy and satisfaction in this world and pursuits that they used to engage in. And it's causing them to go back into those ways that are pulling them away from Jesus. That's the the key part of this application. And so I think we have to recognize that there are always going to be divisions that will give Christians the opportunity to grow in knowledge and love. And that's a different way of thinking about these differences for us. But it, they really do give us an opportunity to grow in knowledge and practice love. So if you've been around Christian circles for some time, you might remember when I was growing up, it was all the rage to fight about uh, whether or not you could listen to Christian rock music. Now, keep in mind, we, it was not whether we could listen to secular music. We already knew that was sin. And so this was whether or not you could listen to Christian rock music because was it too close? And usually they would draw the line somewhere between Petra and Striper. Uh, and so Petra, you could listen to maybe if you didn't listen to the really heavy stuff that Petra did. But if you got into Striper, clearly they were just another version of Kiss. So they were obviously all going to hell. And if you go to hell with them, then that's on you. Um, then, of course, Harry Potter. Some of you might have grown up in the Harry Potter days where if you were reading Harry Potter, you would probably be letting, giving the devil a foothold. Uh, and you probably also celebrate Halloween at that point. And uh, yeah, you're probably uh, a witch. 
Um, and uh, we had a big debate about creation versus evolution. There's really no end to what Christians can fight about. Um, and uh, it's perpetually applied to drinking. And this is one of those really interesting areas because, you know, we do have so many problems in American society with substance abuse. And now we're talking about whether or not Christians should, in fact, drink. And this was a huge issue in, uh, in many, many, many Christian circles. You know, smoking, always on the, this topic. Gambling, it's sort of on the topic, but only because we all know it's wrong. You know, until, until Thanksgiving comes around, and at our house, we have a whole group, a whole group of family, a whole, two big giant tables of people at our house, and Cheryl brings out a game called Left, Right, Center. I'm totally going to out her on this one. And, and so Left, Right, Center, I don't know if you've played Left, Right, Center, and so largely it's a dice gambling game, and you all put three bucks in, and then you play this game, and it just, just roll the dice, and at the end, you, there's one winner, and everybody else is a loser because you just gambled, and I'm like, I cannot believe this woman brought out a gambling game at the pastor's house at Thanksgiving. And then I was doubly upset about it because I didn't win the pot at the end, and I was like, this, just, this is why I don't gamble, because if I can't win, I don't do it. Um, and, and, you know, so nowadays it's politics. That's a big part now, right? This is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to have a whole lot of conversations. What are the form of government that we ought to support and not? Because, you know, socialism is clearly from the devil. Capitalism, that's from Jesus, right? Because that's what we look at. That's what we think. I mean, if you read the articles and you look at the, what that's what people think, they're like, you can't, why are you socialists? And you're like, as if that ends the conversation. Socialist means non-Christian in many people's minds. I'm like, you guys have to realize that, that the church that Jesus established where he said the gates of hell are not going to stand against it, that also includes all of the monarchies and the socialists and the communists and, you know, the the actual emperors that persecuted the early church, right? Like, you guys know that there might now be more Christians in China than there are people in the U.S.? We're, we're talking about one of the greatest revivals the Christian church has ever seen in 2,000 years. It's happening right now, globally, right now. And we look at that and we think, you think God can't use whatever God wants to use toward his good end? Because he seemed to think the Roman emperors were a great place to birth his church. And yet we draw up these battle lines. I think soon we may very well be talking about war and pacifism. Is it right for Christians to go to war? Is it, is it, what about those Christians that don't want to go to war? What's going on with Russia and the Ukraine and how is that going to affect Christians? You're like, well, of course Christians go to war. That's, that's exactly the point. There's a whole group of Christians that are like, actually, yeah, Jesus said love your enemy. You're not supposed to kill them. Um, and so, like, it's not, it's not so easy a conversation. Vaccinations, masks, this is also ludicrous that we feel like this is somehow an issue that we're all going to agree on, to agree on. We're not. We're not. How do Christians handle these kinds of things? The Eucharist, what will you do when you go to another church? How are you supposed to worship? And so, you know, you draw your lines and you figure it out. And like, so for me, when I go to a Catholic church, partly to honor them and partly to disagree with the, their theology on the Eucharist, I don't participate in communion personally when I go to a Catholic church. But I do when I go to an Episcopalian or a Lutheran church. And it's like I drew a line. I tried to figure it out as best I could. And if you disagree with me on that, then we can have a fun conversation. But it should be that. We don't need to start two new churches because of whether or not you're going to add Episcopalians to the group of people that you can have communi- communion with. 
And yet, this is how Christians often live in all of these difficult, more challenging things. How about involvement in ecumenical services where, you know, you get the clergy together and you pray to, you know, Allah or Great Mother Earth or, you know, the the flying spaghetti monster or whatever it might be. Yoga, that's another one, you know, like yoga. I mean, what about that? You're channeling spirits, their chakra and the thing from the earth and the whole thing and like, this is bad, bad, bad. You got to be careful. I'm not saying you don't have to be careful. I'm not saying you don't have to think about these things. I'm not saying we don't apply knowledge and we look for, for wisdom and all these. I'm saying we have to do all of that. And in the end, we're still going to disagree. We're still going to disagree. I think we're going to see this in increasing ways as the society itself has become more divisive, more argumentative. Christians can, we ought to do better. Humility in our knowledge and restraint in our freedoms. They ought to be the first stop for followers of Jesus Christ when it comes to these debatable issues. One of the coolest things I read this whole week was that in Sweden, they're now teaching wild crows to pick up cigarette butts. I was like, that's a pretty awesome thing. That's a great project. Like, we should totally do that. So you, you, you train them. They go out there. They pick up a cigarette butt. They come drop it in the garbage. And when they drop it in the garbage, they get a peanut. And so for the cost of, like, peanuts, you get to clean up, you get to clean up a city. And they say there's like a billion cigarette butts on the ground in Sweden. And, and all these crows are being deployed in cities now to go pick up these cigarette butts. And one of the researchers had such an insightful point. He's like, this is a really great thing. You know, we get to actually, we can train crows to pick up cigarette butts. And we can't train people to stop throwing them on the ground. And I was like, it's so true. We aren't as bright as we think we are. And even when we know that we are in the right, demanding our rights might very much be wrong. Demanding our rights may very well be the wrong thing to do. Freedom is not the Christian's first battle cry. Love is the Christian's first battle cry. Our use of our power on behalf of the weak and on behalf of the lost, it's how we implement both our love and our freedoms. We have no greater role model than the Savior who himself emptied himself of his power restricted his rights, did not demand his way so those of us who were far from him could come home and we could find the hope and the love and the forgiveness that only he offers. We get to listen and we get to to learn and we get to love and when we are willing to surrender our rights and our privileges for the good of others, we follow in the example of our Savior. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.